This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. I'm really excited about today's panel because joining the roundup for the first time is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He is an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection. And his book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, is due out in June of this year. Mark, so glad to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Returning to the roundup is Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. As always, Lucy, it's great to see you. Great to see you. And finally, political strategist and our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics and a former political director of the California Republican Party, our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike, it's always great to have you back. Great to be back on the panel, guys. On today's roundup, we'll discuss Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's role in the assassination of journalist and pro-democracy activist Jamal Khashoggi, the U.S. reaction, and what all of this portends for Middle East relations. We'll also talk about H.R. 1, also known as the For the People Act, and the everlasting fight to preserve voting rights and democracy. And finally, we'll talk about the domestic terror threat disrupting the people's business in Washington. So, With that, let's get started with what was confirmed last week about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, an author and Washington Post columnist who was a Saudi national living in the U.S. before he was assassinated at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul back in October of 2018. So last Friday, the new director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, declassified an intelligence report that assessed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known by his initials MBS, had approved an operation to capture or kill Khashoggi. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but we need some context to understand this before we really dive in. So first, Mark, could you uh, set the table with a brief overview of the United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud and what makes it unique in the context of our relationships in the Middle East in general? Sure. So, you know, so we've had this longstanding relationship, obviously, you know, seven plus decades. Um, and it's really it was it was based on some critical assumptions. One is kind of our energy dependence uh, on the Saudis and then two on on our uh, strategic need to have a, uh, an ally. Um, and I use that term um, and it's an important term because I think we're going to kind of see a shift from ally to partner. But I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, again, two critical points of the relationship that really sustained us from the Cold War through, you know, I mean, think about the Saudi uh, assistance uh, in helping us, you know, take down the Soviet Union with the support for the Mujahideen. Um, and then we get to the place where we are now, which is a really changed Middle East um, and a really egregious act that was kind of committed in front of the entire world. And that's really, uh, you know, caused a, a, a huge headache um, for what was a, a very sound strategic relationship. So because people may have a frame of reference for Middle East politics that is a few years out of date, can you talk about our current relationships uh, in the Middle East more broadly? Sure. So, you know, that, that, that's a great question. I'm excited to talk about this because, and especially because so much is changing. So, yeah. you know, let's, let's take a tour of the reasons. So, you know, you start off with, with uh, kind of what we call, you know, the Levant slash, you know, the uh, Israel-Palestinian area. So, so clearly Israel is our biggest uh, uh, ally in the region, yet um, we have a, you know, a, uh, certainly a, a right-wing government, you know, led by Bibi Netanyahu, who overtly supported, you know, President Trump. And now, they're kind of stuck um, in, in a sense where, you know, you have the Biden administration coming in, you know, uh, uh, there's a bit of a payback, you know, going on now. But ultimately, Israel remains, um, you know, a, a critical, a critical ally. 
and then if you move towards Jordan, which is a country that I really like to, to talk about and discuss because, you know, King Abdullah was almost born into this relationship. His father, King Hussein, um, was a critical ally even since the 1950s. I like to call Jordan the lily pad of, uh, uh, of, the, of the Middle East for the United States. It's almost an aircraft carrier for us. And they've helped us, particularly on the counterterrorism front. Um, and also in the war in Iraq, but, you know, really, really a, a tremendous relationship. Yeah. And then you get to the Gulf, um, which, of course, is, is fascinating, as we talked about Saudi Arabia. But then you move on to the United Arab Emirates, which is probably the region's biggest success story, you know, an, an enormous financial hub. Um, but, you know, really leaders now in, in technology. And, uh, and of course, uh, given our focus on Iran, a key adversary. Um, so as we kind of, you know, unpack this and, and, and put this all together, it's a it's it's a region which you know has uh, has certainly you know was was dominated in in the fight against the Soviets against communism and now has moved towards then moved towards uh, the the counterterrorism fight and now we are firmly um, at a time where where everyone's focus is on Iran right. uh, and so right uh, and that's that's why the the actions of uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, really end up being so problematic for us because it it really puts a wrench uh, into uh, uh, into kind of our current regional strategy. Okay, so I want to come back to that wrench in a moment, but let's talk about MBS uh, a little bit first, because I want to be sure that we touch on what the West's expectations or or at least their, our hopes were for MBS as he's risen to power, because he was seen as a young reformer, someone who could introduce more Western or small L liberal norms into the strictly Islamist nation, right? And in some respects, with regards to women's rights in the country, he's taken some steps to do just that. But this brutal assassination of Khashoggi, who was an ardent critic of the Saudi monarchy, forces us to reconsider our relationship with MBS and the nation in general. So can you help us understand what we've learned about MBS since our initial assessments when he became crown prince in 2017? Sure. So, you know, and I think it's fair to say, you know, here's a here's a, you know, a political uh, and diplomatic neophyte. I mean, you know, he is he has taken what would be an out, a really promising situation where the West has always looked towards Saudi Arabia with some disdain because of the lack of human rights, the you know, lack right. of, of freedom for women and for religious minorities. And so he comes in ta- saying all the right things. Yet because of of, uh, you know, his you know, thin skin nature and his, his inability to tolerate any dissent, you know, he puts together in essence, which are hit teams that are going around, uh, around the world. And, and so, you know, I think there's, there's tremendous disappointment. You know, if you look back at the Arab spring, you know, every th- the, you know, which, which happened, you know, in 2010, 2011 time period, there was so much hope, uh, for some of these young Middle East leader, leaders coming into power. And, and Mohammed bin Salman, you can, you know, you can almost put him into that category where there's, uh, you know, ultimately it's, these are, these are hopes that are dashed. Okay. So let's look at what the U.S. has done in response to this, because some sanctions were issued against a few Saudi nationals and entities, but there really has been no punishment for MBS himself. So during the 2020 campaign, Biden called Saudi Arabia a pariah, said he would hold the country accountable for its human rights violations. And yet the New York Times reported that the administration assessed there isn't much at all that can or should be done to punish MBS directly. And the Times reported that a consensus developed inside the White House that the cost of a potential breach of the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia was simply too high especially regarding Saudi cooperation on counterterrorism and confronting Iran, which you mentioned. And I think this takes us to the wrench. So can you help us understand everything the Biden administration is weighing here and why they may have decided not to sanction bin Salman? And I have to say that that this, this question is, like, just last night, I finished watching The Dissident, which just came out. It's on Amazon Prime if you want to go watch it. And it's, it is a truly alarming piece of documentary filmmaking. And I, I, I don't know if it's true that there was new news broken in this film, but for me, it, there was so much information that I didn't have before. And the fact that nothing is being done, probably nothing will be done, is just, it, it, it is mind-boggling to me. So hit us with the wrench, Mark. <laughs> so well, there, there, you know, there, there's so much to, to talk about this. Let, you know, I'll, I'll take it from kind of my, you know, my analysis situ- situation, but also some personal anecdotes, too, because I was actually sitting, I was still was at CIA when this all broke. Um, wow. And I was I was in a position where, you know, I certainly would receive these reports, including, uh, you know, I, you know, the, the infamous tape. 
yeah. um, of the actual uh, actual execution. And so let me just say on a personal level, when this first occurred, you know, I think we all were disgusted first and foremost. It's, it's you know, uh, uh, it's a Washington Post journalist, um, someone who was, you know, uh, Khashoggi was trying to get U.S. citizenship. I mean, you can't do this. And and then it but it was discussed in the sense of we realized right then, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. Um, and so then let's get to get to why is that the case? And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, on top of the moral outrage and everyone felt that. Because but, it's fair to say that there's no disagreement that this happened, absolutely. that he ordered it. It's conclusive. Right. Yep. Right. And so and so, you know, I even I even heard recently some Israeli officials saying like they're basically saying, oh, for God's sakes, these guys got to grow up, like allow a little bit of dissent. Um, but ultimately, uh, I think that then candidate Biden made a mistake when he when he was, you know, he, he was being, of course, rightfully critical of the Trump administration's approach to, to the issue. But when he called MBS a pariah, you know, that really puts them in, in a box where the expectations are things are really going to change. But in reality, I think what the administration has done and you really have to take take out, take off your emotional hat and put on your kind of real politique hat like this is the reality. But there's nothing more that they could have done. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's, it's, I think they, you know, we have a hundred billion dollars in FMS sales what is with that? Saudi Arabia, uh, foreign military sales. I'm okay. sorry. Excuse okay. me. So, no, no, you no, know, no. there's, there's an enormous amount of, of, you know, frankly, uh, uh, American weapons that we sell to the Saudis. Um, now that's, that just is, is a fact. Um, they are, I think they are our number two trading partner. Um, so there's, there's an economic inter- interdependence uh, uh, as well. And then, of course, the strategic um, uh, issue in terms of, you know, having this, this alliance against, against the Iranians. So the Biden administration boxed them. Biden boxed himself into a corner by his statements during the campaign. But ultimately, um, and as much as disgusting, and I saw the dissident as well. And I, I mean, again, I was, I was privy yeah. to all the intelligence reporting. There's really no other way we could have turned um, on this. It's just, and, and, and as a matter of fact, you know, I think it's a, a good message has been sent. Um, but to think that we would do any more, I think is unrealistic. Uh, and, and I think, you know, most, most uh, you know, uh, observers in, in, in foreign policy kind of understand this, even if we don't like it. So, so, so the question then that, that seems to raise itself inevitably is then what would it take for us to do something, how far can they go? Because there was a clip in this film, and Mike and Lucy, I want to get your take on this next. But the, I, there was this, there was a clip in the film um, where someone basically said, "If you can kill Jamal Khashoggi in this way," and by the way, folks, they dismembered him. They did and burned yeah. him with seventy pounds of meat in a tandoor oven. That's what they did to his body at the consulate. If you can do that. To a Washington Post journalist who is seeking U.S. citizenship and had to go there for a piece of paper, you can do that to anyone. That's essentially what this what this um, witness was saying. So the question that that is raised is, well, how much power essentially does Saudi Arabia have over the United States, and how you know how much would it take for us to to actually retaliate in some way? I I pose that question to you, Mark. So, so first of all, I think I, you know that's a it's a it's a question that I I think you can answer perhaps by attending a Saudi National Day or having attended one in the past. Okay, um, and I, I have to be careful in this because all of my friends uh, uh, will be angry with me, but it is kind of a grotesque group of former American officials, uh, you know, seeking future contracts um, uh, in the defense industry as well as the entire current national security establishment. Now, this is all pre Khashoggi. It's not happening now. But the amount of influence that the Saudis had uh, in Washington was pretty extraordinary. Now, so I think that has that has really changed. I mean, there really has been bipartisan um, discussed. But but again, you have to dance through the raindrops on this. And I love that expression oh. because there is there is no other you know way we can really go. And I think we've sent a, the Saudis a very strong message. You know, it's it's I, I think the the Saudis have been humiliated by this. You know, despite the the public you know outrage and anger. And you know, it, it's going to be important to see kind of what what you know what what comes next. Um, but the idea of of you know a a visa ban, for example, on MBS, he's not going to visit the United States anyway. So that would have been symbolic. Um, you know, and so, you know, we, we, I think that, that, uh, uh, they're, they've been put on notice, um, but to expect anything more, you know, despite the, uh, you know, and I, again, I saw the dissident as well, and I was privy to all the intelligence reporting, despite the, the, the horrific nature. Um, I think, uh, I, I think we are, you know, it, it, the real, this is the only policy to take what, what the administration announced. And again, they boxed themselves in earlier by, by the, the rhetoric of calling them a pariah. Yeah. Um, and so I think expectations were too high. So, 
Uh, Mike and Lucy, uh, Mike, I want to go to you first. I want to hear your thoughts because on everything from press freedom to diplomacy, Biden has wanted to mark clear differences between his administration and the previous one. So how do we square that with essentially an action towards MBS in the light of what we know now about Khashoggi's assassination? Well, you don't. You can't square it. And I think that that's part of the issue. Um, It's actually part of the characteristics of a lot of our foreign policy in the Middle East specifically, but even even, even with Asian countries, China uh, as well where we recognize that some of these countries are too big, too wealthy, too influential to hold them up to the standard that we kind of proclaim um, that we, we um, want them to or, or claim to hold up ourselves as we've realized during some of the past few years as well. Um, look, it's, it's realpolitik, as Mark just mentioned. He's exactly right. There's a balance of power issue here as well in the Middle East is we, we have these virtues and these ideals that we want to uphold and promote human rights issues, um, transparency issues. And we want to, we want to put up the, the, and I don't want to call it a facade because I believe it's genuine, but we, we genuinely want to have partners and allies that we're working with that, that meet the same standards, which we are seeking to promote. The reality is there are parts of the world where that's not going to happen, at least not in the shorter medium term. And as a result, we have some very difficult, ugly, unfortunate decisions to make in a part of the world which we consider to be pretty unstable. And there's some very serious balance of power issues. Saudis and the Saudi government have been uh, particularly problematic with a number of different domestic and foreign issues that we've had to deal with. I mean, you couldn't get to a 9-11 without, without Saudi involvement. Mm. I mean, let's just be candid about that mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And if we couldn't hold them accountable then... Um, why should we have the expectation that we're going to hold them accountable now? Um, and, and look, it's easy for, for me to judge that, right? To be principled and stand up and say that. I, I, I do believe that there needs to be a greater reckoning and accounting, but I also understand that there are some extraordinary dynamics at play, a lot of which Mark just pointed out, that deal with a balance of power in a very volatile part of the world. And so it's it's been easy for us political leaders joe biden notwithstanding to say this is what we're going to expect this is how we're going to hold them to account but when we actually get there we tend to take our foot off the brake a little bit and kind of ease off of that because of the sensitive nature of uh the the political situation in the middle east so we're balancing the moral outrage which is right with the ugly reality of the way the world is lucy what how are you thinking about all of this I think that the question of if this could happen to someone like Jamal Khashoggi, it could happen to anyone in a way should be reversed. I think probably we should think we know about this particular incident because it was Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist. But let's assume then that there are many, many lesser known stories of would-be Jamal Khashoggi's that we don't know about and and that that this is an issue that we maybe don't have a good solution to. I think that probably an imperfect metaphor, um, but one that hopefully resonates with people, when you think about when you own a home or you're buying a home and you decide to take on renovations yourself or you buy a house and crazy stuff comes out in inspection, like... um, at some point, someone wired this really, really odd thing that actually then reveals all these other problems, right? Or like there were several layers of flooring and I thought we were going to get to beautiful wood floors, but there was a very thick layer of mold above it because it was not ever properly <laughs> installed. I think that may seem sort of like an odd thing to bring up, but I think that that's actually what this issue reveals when you think about US relations with a country like Saudi Arabia and all of the kind of things that come with that, the implications for the relationship with Israel, the implications for our relationship with Russia, our dependence on foreign oil. And these are absolutely not things that I am particularly an expert in, but I appreciate that this brings up a lot of those discrete issues. And, And I mention that because I think that that is really what the Biden administration should be working to communicate with the American people. Jen Psaki said that what they want to do, yeah, they want to focus on the network of yeah. people 
people who are committing these atrocities. Uh, But I think that certainly the Biden administration inherited this issue. This is far just head and shoulders above what we had just a few months ago, a president who could barely acknowledge that this had happened and whose own son-in-law is, you know, like hanging out on mega yachts with the perpetrator. (laughs) Um, So we are in a much, much better place. Um, It is understandable that this in this moment also feels for a lot of people, a lot of Americans reading the news, like, I thought we were going to be righteous and virtuous. So I, I think that really we could maybe try to bridge that gap of this difficult situation by asking the Biden administration to do better in articulating their thinking on this. And and that's really been missing. Yeah. Mark, you're nodding. And I was going to go to you to help us like land this plane, um, because what I'd really like to know is, uh, well, first of all, follow up on what Lucy just said, and how can we untangle the, you know, the network that allowed this to happen? And then maybe more broadly with a longer term view, what are the things that would need to happen in order for the U.S. to be less dependent on uh, Saudi oil, in order for us to 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 be um, essentially uh, less incentivized to go along with um, you know to 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 continue our relationship in such a tolerant way. I think that what Lucy said is exactly right, and you can't forget that you know in the you had Jared Kushner in the past, you know, in his in his famous WhatsApp chats with MBS. Which, which, of course, drove us crazy uh, uh, within the government because we had no idea what was being said. And so, you know, what is our policy? Um, you know, that violates all diplomatic norms. There's no there's no cable record that, uh, you know, the, the State Department would, you know, would, would, would produce on this. Um, but you can't discount. And, and this is going to sound, you know, this, you know, perhaps a bit of a, a, a cop out. But but knowing the Biden team and knowing the players and knowing of real Haynes and others, they are pained right now in dealing with this. That's a far different story from the Trump administration, where, where honestly, you know, President Trump could not care one way or the other that a Washington Post journalist w- was killed. It just was a headache to him, nor could no, nor would uh, was, was Jared uh, Kushner bothered at all. So I think that the Biden team actually does, you know, for lack of a better term, care. And you can even see in the, you know, in the, in the yeah. press conferences. I mean, this is painful they to try. They take it seriously, at least. And that's they a starting They do take point. it seriously. Yeah. And so so then you shift to, you know, what what's happening at the U.S. Embassy in, in, in Riyadh. And I think that's that, you know, that's a that's a good place to look at because there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, people to people contacts. And and so so they can express um, kind of a different sentiment where in the past they would, you know, they, they you know, we frankly were, were giving MBS uh, a, a, a pass, but now they're not going to. And so, you know, so, you know, there is something kind of on that softer diplomacy that we really can push forward, that this is kind of a, a different change in tune. And, and then finally, to your last question, we actually are not dependent on, on the Saudi Arabia for energy. And that's really important because things have changed. What we are dependent on is this alliance against Iran. And what is going to be most interesting is as the administration pushes forward on a renewed, you know, potential nuclear deal with Iran, Saudi Saudi Arabia becomes even less important um, in the sense that we're not gearing up for the Saudis and, and you know, uh, you know, use of air bases or kind of potential future military action. Um, so if there is a new, you know, renewed uh, nuclear deal, I think, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia kind of gets pushed down to a, a you know, of lesser import. And then I, and I would conclude with saying that you know, we had talked to uh, we talked about Saudi Arabia as an ally. I think we should talk to that, talk about them as a partner. Um, you downgrade that a little bit. And so, so, you know, and, and that, is that that's a meaningful fair. distinction in, in foreign policy, uh, language. I think it really is. Um, because, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, obviously there's going to be points of difference, um, with partners, you know, you look for, uh, you know, uh, you know, shared, shared issues, shared, shared subjects to work on, but it's okay to criticize, um, and sometimes actively. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, ultimately what this whole Khashoggi affair is going to end up doing is kind of putting Saudi Arabia down a notch into kind of where they belong right now as a partner of the United States. Um, but not necessarily that ally where we sent half a million troops back, you know, uh, uh, in, in, you know, 1990, 1991. All right. Let's look at the latest in the HR1 fight. Now, if you're unfamiliar, HR1 is also known as the For the People Act. It was first introduced in 2019 during the 116th Congress, where it passed the House and died in the Republican-controlled Senate. Now it's been reintroduced and is soon to be voted on again in the House. And with Democrats in unified control of Washington, it could really pick up momentum quickly. So just to briefly run through some of the provisions in this bill, it will implement automatic voter registration, 
expand early and absentee voting, simplify voting by mail, prohibit voter roll purges, improve election security, upgrade online political ad disclosure, and require presidents to disclose their tax returns. So, Mike, first, can you help us understand why there's a push to pass this bill now and why Republicans are up in arms about it? The main reason that you're seeing uh, legislative efforts on this front are largely because you are beginning to also see a Republican front taking place at the state's to start limiting the franchise. Uh, We've talked in previous episodes that when you begin to remove yourself from the marketplace of ideas as a political party and surround yourself with one fast shrinking demographic, you have no other tactical choice if you want to win elections. You have to restrict the franchise to just that demographic or do your level best to make sure that people that are not supportive are not being able to vote or that it's as hard as possible to do so. And that's where HR1 comes in. Now, there's a lot of good things about HR1. I think it's a little bit too expansive in areas that aren't necessarily germane to the discussion. But the bottom line is there's going to have to be a national effort to, uh, to, to federalize some of these election laws. We cannot rely on a state-by-state allowance of this for partisan and demographic reasons. Our history as a country is replete with states um, acting against the best interests of the populace, specifically minority voters, even more specifically black voters um, uh, in the era of Jim Crow. So in, until, and we, we, have, we have the reach to do that, by the way, there are some things that are obvious in my estimation, but, but controversial as a, as, you know, as a partisan, I think we should have universal voter registration. I think we have the capacity to do this and it can be federally protected. Everybody who turns 18, who is citizen eligible, who's not a felon, should be automatically registered to vote on their 18th birthday. The technology exists. This is not hard to do. It should not be left to the states. The states can implement it, but it should be federally protected. I also, and here's where I'm going to get really controversial, but in tandem with that, not in isolation, in tandem with that, I believe very firmly that we should have a voter identification card. If there is universal voter access, there is no reason that you cannot have Mm. and should not have some sort of verification that you are that person who is already federally protected and guaranteed to vote. Now, how we implement that is it should be done as, as loosely and progressively and expansively as possible, but, and you can, it should not, neither of these should be done in isolation, by the way, Right. but it's a good, simple, easy way to force both sides to the table to say, if you genuinely are committed to this, let's do both. It actually does and will enhance the system. Anybody who's worked on campaigns abroad in virtually every country of the world, there is some sort of voter identification system. I've done work in Mexico, for example. There are a lot. People are shocked by the fact that there's no voter identification card. So look, these are simple reforms as long as they're not done in a vacuum and in isolation. The bottom line is, if we do not use this moment to federalize much of our election systems, we will probably suffer the consequences for at least another generation, because there's going to be very strong tactical actions taken to undermine the ability of people to vote, and that undermines, obviously, democracy. It weakens democracy at its core. And it also allows for a further partisanization and poisoning of the body politic. And that's what HR1 is attempting, at least, to do at this point in time. There's probably a little bit too much in there that, that is unnecessary um, to get this done. But the bottom line is, this is a moment, a critical moment in democracy. It may sound a little bit arcane, a little bit too nerdy, but it's extremely important. Because we have a very limited window on the on the heels of, of, of everything that just happened in 2020. And we've got redistricting coming up, right. and we've got very, right. slim, so very slim majorities in the House and the right. Senate. And speaking of redistricting, it is not included in H.R. 1. H.R. 1 does not fix the abuse of the Voting Rights Act to artificially, to manufacture power for Republicans that essentially don't have the numbers to back it up in in key states. It does not address that. And if you've listened to the first installation of our redistricting series, fantastic. There will be another one coming up soon where we talk about the Voting Rights Act. Lucy, uh, at risk of opening a can of worms, Democrats, not just in the Senate, but also President Biden, uh, may face a choice regarding the filibuster sooner than maybe they would have preferred as it relates to HR1. So I don't want to linger on this too long, but it's important to think about 
what kind of position HR1 is forcing Democrats into. Yeah, I think that it is yet another issue where we have to kind of come to terms with the filibuster. And that's really, really important when you look at senators like uh, Cinema and Mansion uh, and and Democratic senators who really want to fashion themselves as persuadable moderates. And and to some degree, I think that they they would be even if they supported eliminating the filibuster. Um, but it remains to be seen. Certainly the episode of recent weeks over, you know, getting into a situation where the Senate was leaving it to the parliamentarian to to decide <laughs> whether or not minimum wage could be hiked up, um, you know, through that uh, through that package, sort of in, in the absence of the ability to get rid of the filibuster, I think really laid bare how challenging how challenging that is i think in terms of hr1 i think that i wish that it were a smaller bill i think that the voting provisions are great uh something that we have not talked about are the campaign finance provisions and there are many uh and and one of the biggest is that uh hr1 would create a new matching fund system uh it would be a 6 to 1 match where candidates who had raised a certain threshold of money uh would then unlock uh and and were committed to raising small dollar donations so not taking more than $1000 per individual donation, um, would unlock a matching provision where for each $200 donation they got, they would get up to $1,200 matched. Um, I tend to be kind of nervous about matching funds because I think it can actually have a lot of unintended consequences. Um, I was involved in uh, some efforts to eliminate matching funds in campaign finance programs that had a lot of implications for the states years ago. And one of the things, there was actually a landmark Supreme Court case in 2011 called McComish v. Bennett about matching funds. But one of the kind of funny things that happens in matching fund systems is that you can unintentionally perpetuate crazy people. Right? <laughs> I mean, and, and I bring this up because Democrats actually last cycle killed Republicans in in fundraising and across the board. I mean, they they smoked them. So um, so this is not like a particular problem facing Democrats right now. But if you think about who is the constituency of someone like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, is a matching fund system yeah. Are are they the the folks that we want to have take advantage of this? So so I think that you know I hope that as HR1 moves forward and to bring it back to your question about what happens as it moves toward the Senate, I I hope that that will be a chance, you know, whether it ends up involving whether we eliminate the filibuster or not. I hope that that's a chance to really maybe think about ways to pare down HR1 um to eliminate some of the campaign finance provisions which I'm just not sold on. Um to sort of take some of the kind of uh, warfare against corporations out of out of the bill, because we have a lot of indications right now, actually, that American corporations are trying to be better stewards um, of their communities. And so I'd like to see it pared down. And, and I think then we'll probably wind up with a package that maybe uh, maybe is a little bit more movable yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as it gets set back to the House and to Biden's desk. So, Mark, I want to I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in here because Mike mentioned having done work in Mexico and how the election security is you know, the fact that we don't have a way to verify voters, but also, as Mike said, we can't do either of these things in in isolation, right? Because if we introduce voter ID laws, they have a disproportionate effect on people who are Democrats or minorities don't have um, the ease of access in maneuvering bureaucracies. It it ends up being extremely disenfranchising if it's not paired with universal voter registration. So, can you talk about this in the context of other other democracies, other countries? how we ought to be thinking about where the, you know, how the U S should be leading on this thing in particular. So it's a, it's a fantastic question, Ron. And so, you know, I always talk about the world, the world watches us very closely. So literally I, I received a, a, a phone call, um, uh, yesterday from a friend of mine in Europe who was actually wanted to engage in debate with me on HR one and was far more steeped in the nuances than I am. And so, you know, wow. so how, but on a serious note, how we reform our democratic system, um, that's, that's a, that's an international issue. 
um, you know, America, and, and I still believe in this, you know, America uh, is seen as the shining city on the hill. So our democratic ideals and our processes are, are not only important for, for Americans, but are important for those who believe in, in, in democracy. So this really is an issue um, that, that resonates uh, uh, overseas. So I think about my time uh, as, a, as, a, as an operations officer for, for the CIA, in which what we are tasked to do is go out and spot, assess, develop, and recruit individuals uh, from foreign countries who who will assist us with you know providing information why do they do this well sometimes it's for money but a lot of times it's because america means something it's because of ideology and what we've seen over the last four years with you know our system really at a breaking point that has an effect on even how we can conduct our business in the cia in finding those who are willing to help uh, and and I'll conclude with just in a moment that I always think about. I was in a it was a Middle Eastern country where I was serving. I was walking down the street. I looked up and I saw the silhouette of the American American flag, um, you know, at night uh, at, at a U.S. embassy. And I had chills. And it was not because of what you know the the close knit uh, staff we had at the embassy, but I knew that people in that country looked at that flag and that it meant something. So. Going back to HR one, it does matter. It's an it's an international issue, and and you know we have to get kind of the reform of our democratic system. We have to get that right. You know, it's funny you say that because uh, John Seifer, your your friend and former colleague, said sure. exactly the same thing when we were having this discussion about Russia and U.S. relationships with with Russia and how how crucial it is that America means something yep. to our adversaries and to our allies around the world. Okay, let's talk about this Pence op-ed as it relates to election security, because earlier this week, former Vice President Mike Pence wrote an op-ed decrying H.R. 1 as a brazen attempt to nationalize elections. That's That's what he said. He also lamented that the January 6th insurrection, quote, deprived the American people of a substantive discussion in Congress about election integrity in America. Now, as a reminder, January 6th, Vice President Mike Pence was presiding over the certification of President Biden and Vice President Harris as the winners of the election before the Capitol was stormed by Trump supporters who wanted to kill, among others, Mike Pence. Lucy, how should we be thinking about Pence and other Republicans rewriting or attempting to rewrite the January 6th attack as thwarting their good faith efforts to discuss election integrity? Well, let me start with a sort of DC insider mean girl comment, which is that when I saw his op-ed, I thought, is the Daily Signal the only place you could place this horrible (laughs) op-ed? Like, are you making a statement? Are you making a statement about what kind of media you think that your followers should be consuming? Are you trying to sort of, are you trying to... uh, make the daily are you trying to make the daily signal happen because it's not going to happen <laughs> no. but i i did think that was really interesting and and i thought that the decision the decision to publish it in the daily signal really indicated i think that i've never heard Mike, of the daily signal like I, I i'd never heard of it before i think it was started by ben shapiro at uh at heritage i i could be wrong about that but it it's very it's it's basically it was incubated at the Heritage Foundation. Okay. And I thought I thought that for all, I, I think that the vice president could probably c- could have gone to the Wall Street Journal and maybe they wouldn't have let him spew falsehoods about the election and the so-called stolen election. But I thought that the fact that that was the venue he chose. I mean, he's the outgoing vice president, for God's sake. Obviously, he has his pick of platforms. Really shows, I think, that the kind of ghettoizing, for lack of a better term, of conservative media and and really kind of the the woe is us, we're, we're so cut off from the mainstream. You're doing that to yourself. So that is sort of one kind of little piece of that that I thought was really interesting. But the fact that Pence wrote that January 6th, the events of January 6th, were what deprived the American people of a substantive discussion in Congress about election integrity in America is so stunning. What he means is we got there, we were going to have this ruckus good time trying to undermine our democracy. And then some rioters that my boss, Donald Trump, had incited to kill members of Congress and me got out of hand. And because it got so out of hand and because they were 
you know, defecating on, you know, the floor of the rotunda and smashing windows and killing police officers and getting themselves killed and so on and so forth. We've all seen the footage that when we all came back in later that night after we had, you know, been able to get members of Congress out of the bunkers where they were being held and for their safety, then no one was brave enough to double down, except Josh Hawley, double down on the sort of claims of election, uh, stolen elections. And we've talked about why are they double downing? Why are they (laughs) doubling down on this? And I think it is, goes back to what we've talked about before about the ends justifying the means, but you don't have to look too far. I mean, you can look to just a few days ago at, at Trump's speech at CPAC. I mean, it was very, very clear that this is the strategy moving forward, right? It is, it is, the election was stolen and, and, and Donald Trump, I know we don't love talking about him anymore, but I think it's important here for all of sort of what a megalomaniac Donald Trump is. He is extremely disciplined about using the term we and us when he talks to his followers. And I listened to his speech because I was doing an interview about it right after. So I got to spend my Sunday listening to this insanity. It was great. (laughs) But I was thinking about this because it's something that I've thought about with Trump a lot. And I was thinking, oh, he's doing the we thing. And then there was a, a moment where he accidentally said I and he corrected himself and he Ooh. said, and by I, of course, I mean we. It's in the speech. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. But that's the strategy. We were robbed. The election was stolen from us. And and that's that's their story. And they're going to stick to it, I think, to to their own demise. But but with probably a lot of short term um, p- pain, suffering and violence for the rest of us to witness. So um, just a, a quick clarification, Daily Signal is fully funded and published by the Heritage Foundation and Ben Shapiro is a contributor uh, to the signal, um, but the Daily Wire is the one that that he founded. Just so our ah, listeners are clear. But Mike, Mike, I saw you <laughs> nodding, and le- and and regular listeners of this show, especially when you're on, know that the fight to protect voting rights is ongoing and far from over. What does it say that today in the U.S. our two major political parties are engaged in a party line debate over democracy itself? and the ability of citizens to vote and be represented accurately and fairly. This debate actually is not terribly dissimilar to the immigration reform debate and mm. oftentimes not for the for, for for many times for the same reasons. What I mean by that is this, reconciling this debate is actually quite easy, okay? It's really not difficult to get to where we want to. Both sides find partisan advantage and they're not reconciling this because you lose the ability to scare and mobilize your voters once you actually solve the problem. We've talked at length uh, on previous podcasts about fear and anger being the best motivator of of, uh, your partisan base on both sides and both sides are complicit in doing this. Look, whenever you bring up a solution that of of uh, 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 towards something like this, or even on the immigration reform debate, the fact that you simply offer an idea that the other side might have some value or, or two makes you a, a pariah. It makes you a bad person. Makes you weak. It makes you weak. It makes you you know send them out into the the you know wilderness and let them die of exposure. Right? Get rid of these people, the heretics. This is not complicated, folks. The first thing we need to understand is, and, and this is what Mike Pence, did in his, Pence said in his op-ed, um, th- it's a brazen attempt to nationalize our election, federalize our election. We should. When we're electing a president, there's nothing wrong with having federal standards. We, are, we have too much bad history as a country in the last hundred years with, with states not doing the right thing, with consciously trying to disenfranchise voters. I mean, it's not, it's not debatable. It's, it's this just is not. Why, this is why Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act existed in the first place, because the Southern states couldn't be trusted not to, I'll say it again, engage in fuckery with regard to disenfranchising massive amounts of voters. So we put it in a federal law. Yeah, it's not debatable. Like this is our history and it's not recent. It's not one off. It's systemic. It's been with us for a century, longer, more than a century. And it needs the federal government's oversight to demand that certain 
requirements and restrictions be made. Now, like the immigration reform issue, ballot integrity, those words are used for a reason. They're very popular. People listen to that and say, yeah, there should be some sort of ballot security that is more enhanced. And I happen to agree with that. Say what you will about it. As a practitioner who's done more elections than I can possibly count at this point in my career, there needs to be done more to to make sure that the integrity of voting is intact. But the, the moment to do all of this is now, minus the partisan nonsense that are, is, uh, is included in HR1, because there's a lot of it, and it's unnecessary, it's gratuitous, and it's not helpful. It's, tr- it's designed to score political points at a time when that is the last thing that we need. So we need to federalize our elections. There needs to be greater transparency. There needs to be a dramatic, dramatic expansion of the franchise through ballot, absentee ballot voting, through guaranteed uh, hours of voting, through a required number of polling places based off of precinct density. We need to make sure that disenfranchised communities have access to the ballot booth. We need more ballot integrity. Again, I'm going to say it again, and I'm sure I will be attacked on social media relentlessly. There needs to be some sort of authentication of every voter along with universal voter registration. And keep in mind, those two only work hand in hand. They cannot and should not work in isolation. And once those all done comprehensively, this is not really that contentious. If you would disagree with these things, there is a partisan advantage you are seeking. It is that simple. You either support democracy, you support a greater expansion of the franchise as a way to make democracy healthy, or you do not. And if you do not, it is not in the best interest of your country. It is the best interest of your party, your organization, and your agenda. And that at its core is anti-democratic. So, Mark, I'd love for you to help us look at this once again through the lens of national security and how the stresses and fractures in our democratic system, um, you know, as the as the country that has been pointed to as an exemplar of democracy, or as you put it, the shining city on a hill, as Reagan put it, how is all of this viewed by people, groups, and governments in the Middle East, and why does that matter? Sure. So, you know, and 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 I'll go back again to 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 how the world is watching. But but ultimately, and I go back to and and you know I've, I'm a, I'm I'm a critic of the Trump administration. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious if you follow uh, you know what I what I say and what and what You're I write. You're in good company. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, to be fair, you know, the, or, or to be honest, there's never been a time where really the United States has been so humiliated uh, overseas. And, and I say this. Um, uh, and, and in particular, and, and certainly with this with this issue on on HR one, because again, our job as, as U.S. officials overseas is, is frankly to promote democracy everywhere we go, even if we make big um, you know exceptions <laughs> to the rule in, in, in the Middle East. But but people are very smart, and so as we kind of preach this issue, uh, they do say, okay, but wait a second, you know, you are not fair to your minority communities. Um, they talk about the, you know, the, the, the divide between the North, the South, um, you know, b- between New York, California versus, versus, you know, the, uh, the, the middle of the country. So, you know, the, the nightmare for all of us was going to a diplomatic reception and having the Pakistani, I'm going to get in trouble now, the Pakistani, the Venezuelan and the Yemeni and the Filipino ambassador come up to you and say, you know, hey, hey we're kind of we're on the same side now. And that is what happened in the Trump administration. Um, not a not a not a proud time. I, I'll tell you though that that for me, the kind of and and for my friends overseas, certainly was you know the, the events at Lafayette Park. I think was probably um, one of the worst uh, uh, instances where you know a lot of us kind of really questioned on how we would go forward in representing the United States overseas because that was such an awful you know event witnessed by all. It was such a breach in kind of the defense. You know, DOD civilian relationship too, with with uh, with Esper and Milley walking with with President Trump, um, and the use of force against not only peaceful protesters but also journalists. Um, that you know that really uh, are, was some of the things that I denounced and worked against in the third world, in Iraq and Syria and Sudan and Libya. That must and have so, been so crushing. To it see. was. It was. It was crushing. And I was. You know, I was. I and several others were were very vocal about this. Now, look, we are not Saddam's Iraq or Bashar's Syria, but there's there were elements enough. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in terms of kind of authoritarian, authoritarian tendencies that we saw coming out of the Trump administration, it was worth um, uh, uh, speaking up. But again, um, the, uh, on on HR one and in particular, people are watching. Um, and if we're going to preach democracy overseas, as we should. 
uh, we got to get it right at home. So go ahead, go ahead, Lucy. You know, I think that both Mike and Mark are highlighting something that that we've talked about on politicology before, and that is really true, which is that, yeah, it's easy to look at kind of some of what has happened in recent years and think, oh my gosh, it was, you know, Donald Trump blew in and, and it was a disaster. And it, it's true, <laughs> but it underscored things that needed to be addressed foundationally. And, and in the case of HR1 and, and in the case of some of, you know, what both Mike and you, Ron, have talked about and have alluded to with things like redistricting, it is, you know, really fixing the Voting Rights Act. I mean, it, we Section 5, which is what we call preclearance, the ability to make sure that, as you would say, fuckery doesn't happen with figuring out how to make it fair and equitable for minority communities to vote. That has been, that has been functionally eliminated by the 2013 SCOTUS decision in, in Shelby County. Uh, and so, you know, we have no enforcement mechanism for Section 5. And, and that is an example of the kind of issue that came before Trump, right? It came before Josh Hawley, before Ted Cruz, before what we know of as today's Republican Party. So as we have this chance now to think about what kind of country we want to be, to build back from kind of the ashes of the pandemic and uh, obvious authoritarian tendencies within the Republican Party. And I mean, for God's sake, the end to our tradition of the peaceful transfer of power, thanks to the terrorists on January 6th, it's also an opportunity to go back to some of those foundational principles like figuring out how to put teeth in the Voting Rights Act again so that so that we can build the kind of city on a hill that yeah. someone might want that to aspire to. That light starts to shine again. Yeah. Abroad, right. Yeah. So we're recording this on Thursday. It's March 4th, and federal law enforcement is on high alert today. And on Tuesday, there was a joint warning by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security about a group of violent militia extremists who discussed plans to take over the U.S. Capitol and remove Democratic members of Congress on or around March 4th. This stems from a QAnon conspiracy theory that Donald Trump was going to be re-inaugurated on, on, on March 4th, which was the scheduled date for George Washington's inauguration and usually when the president-elect took the oath of office before the 20th Amendment. And law, and, and law enforcement has said that it's not clear if the discussion has moved beyond talks to an actual plot, but the House actually moved a vote from Thursday to Wednesday night. The U.S. Capitol Police said in a statement that it has made significant security upgrades, including a physical structure and increased manpower since the January 6th attack, Lucy, that you were just mentioning. And this is all according to CNN. So uh, what impact uh, could it have if we continue seeing these threats and conversations about attacking the Capitol moving forward. Um, and, and I would just add that Ben Collins tweeted last week that there's another cue date for the re-inauguration of Trump. It is now March 20th. These things keep, you know, popping up down the, down the road. Like, what's it going to mean if we keep seeing more of these dates pop up? I want to hear from each of you, but Lucy, why don't you start us off? I think it's really difficult because we want to show that we're taking these threats seriously, but we also don't want to have lawmaking uh, by fear, right? We don't want to have our legislative process, one of our three branches of government, impacted by threats from domestic terrorists. And and to go to some of what Mark has shared, I mean, that doesn't feel like what we think of as part of the American tradition. I also think that I sort of was kind of joking earlier about Mike Pence and what venue he's publishing his, his commentary in these days. But I think that we have to figure out a better way to cover uh, issues around this. I mean, this morning, CBS has a big, big, long-form interview of the QAnon shaman, so-called, you know, where he's being interviewed in uh, jail talking about how he's this sort of benevolent guy who was singing and holding prayer circles in the Capitol and was telling people not to steal the muffins, really weird stuff. But why are we giving this person a venue on a major news network? And so that comes down to 
sort of media cable ratings and and what kind of coverage we engage in. But the more that we give, it's tough because you want to keep everyone as safe as possible. I have friends who work on the Hill. I, I have friends who are journalists who cover the Hill. I, I hate to think of anyone I know, let alone anyone, uh, find themselves in a situation like so many people found themselves on January 6th. But at the same time, we have to be able to move forward and and not create an opportunity for these domestic terrorists to disturb our government. Yeah. Mike? I think it's important to understand, uh, to Lucy's last point, this is domestic terrorism, right? And we need to move beyond the point where we are shocked at these, you know, day-by-day activities of kind of reinforcing the capital and recognize we are in the middle of a battle with a, a terrorist threat that is daily going to be uh, attacking our institutions. This is by design. This is a methodical effort to consistently undermine confidence in the system. And just like you see with other conspiracy theories or you know doomsday scenarios on the Mayan calendar, oh no, we read it wrong. The, the real end of the world is going to come in eight weeks. And then when it doesn't, it comes in three more weeks. It's all designed to keep focus and energy on undermining our democratic institutions. This is a plan. This is thought out. This is structured. This is designed to continually erode at the confidence in our systems and force us to have to barricade the cathedral of democracy, right? The, 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 the cradle of what we hold dear in what was, and I still believe is, the greatest legislative body on the planet. That's what this is. The need for us to, to gate ourselves off, to gate our people away from our Capitol building has extraordinary um, symbolic consequences in the minds of America and the American experiment. That's a very significant problem. That's, again, part of what this is designed to do. I do happen to believe that terrorism needs to be rooted out. It needs to be smashed like insurrections, and it needs to be treated and dealt with 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 a much heavier hand than I currently see it being dealt with. We still are viewing this as kind of this peculiar social problem, this peculiarity where it's like, Oh, it's it's QAnon stuff, and somebody was radicalized online, and oh, you know, it's these weird people, as as Lucy was saying, and let's 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 just talk about how peculiar all of this is. It's like a circus act, kind of, to some people. Right. It's yeah. all performative. Right. It's all performative, and we are treating it that way. This is a terrorist threat that is trying to overthrow the damn government. Yeah, treat it like that. It's not cute. It's not funny. It's not reality TV. Prosecute it to the fullest extent of the law. And have absolutely no tolerance for those that are trying to overthrow the U.S. government, because that's what this is. And until we begin to treat it that way, we're going to continually have to live life like this. Until we draw the line and say no more, we're going to change our attitudes about what this genuinely evidentiary is, we will continue to have to live like this. And it could be for many, many decades to come until we finally have enough as Americans to say this is terrorism. You know, if only we had somebody on the panel today who knows a lot about terrorism. <laughs> Mark, Mark, I saw you nodding. And yeah. I remember Abigail Spanberger, who's a member of the House from Virginia and a former CIA operations officer, also talking about the January 6th attacks presented opportunities for our adversaries. So can you help us understand how our adversaries will see continued threats against the Capitol? And I also love to hear your thoughts on everything Mike just said. Sure. So, so I, I, I agree completely with Mike. First of all, and, and one thing, Abby Spanberger is a very good friend of mine. Um, and I was actually texting with her wh- while she was in, you know, uh, under siege in the house oh, wow. and, and she performed spectacularly. I mean, she was one of the, the, the members, uh, uh, who was going around telling them to take their pins off. So in case the, wow. the, the uh. actual floor was breached, they wouldn't oh, know who wow. the members were. So Abby's a great friend. I think she was a hero that day, but let me just kind of put this in perspective. So Mike is, is a hundred percent right. Um, you know, are we so bad at internal law enforcement and intelligence gathering that we can't stop these clowns in QAnon um, and, 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 and the kind of the right wing militias who are very dangerous, but they could be stopped. And it, so it's been a staggering failure in my mind. And then and then I'll just add that what I did overseas for the United States, and, you know, it's going to sound pretty graphic, is we got really good at manhunting. Mm. And that's just something that we talk about in, in my world. And that means finding and fixing and sometimes helping uh, with our military colleagues to finish. Now, we're not going to do this here, but 
But this is to finish our terrorist adversaries. We're really good at this. Um, we're, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to Al Qaeda or, or an ISIS, we seem to be pretty bad at the find and fix portion, uh, portion mm-hmm. you know, uh, internally. So I think you have to really take a uh, take a look at that because I think we have we have failed tremendously because this is a a very serious terrorist threat. Um, and then, and, and a final point that I'll make is I, re, you know, I was there. I was I was you know my my career as a counterterrorism officer, and I was actually uh, uh, in New York after nine eleven. The feeling we had in the counterterrorism center is that we had failed spectacularly. We had failed the American people. Um, you know, you know, we let the big one come in. I don't see any of that sentiment right now. And it's yeah. extraordinary to me. You know, um, what happened on January 6th was a absolute travesty. Uh, and, and I don't see that same kind of kind of internal reckoning within law enforcement and the FBI and, frankly, a DOD as well, if you watch the hearings. Where, where, you know, individuals would say, you know, we really, we really failed and we, we failed in our, in our kind of our yeah. sworn duty um, and we have to get better and we get better by doing X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk now about maybe, you know, perhaps creating a domestic intelligence agency, you know, akin to MI5 uh, in the UK. I'm not sure that's the right way to go, but, but I'll tell you what happened on January 6th was a, was a, was a complete failure of leadership, of intelligence um, of planning. And, uh, you know, I watched that with absolute horror that day. I could not believe my eyes, what I was, what I was yeah. seeing. Can I, can I just ask you a follow-up question about why you sure. think that difference in culture exists between, you know, and, and, you know, obviously how, how that makes you feel as someone who worked for the CIA, which has a mandate not to operate within the United States and only to operate abroad, how you, how, how you feel about the difference in, in culture between, you know, obviously on one side, a group of people willing to accept responsibility for the failure and and make whatever corrections are necessary so it doesn't happen again versus what we're seeing with domestic law enforcement which is sort of an you know abandoning that responsibility or trying to pass it off is it have something to do with the way domestic politics is playing out in the US or how do you how do you make sense of that so so i mean i think that you can you can go to even you know the, during the trump administration the great reluctance um to prioritize you know right-wing domestic terrorism now there's this fascination and this um you know uh, uh, craziness over kind of left-wing uh, terrorism and there are problems i mean clearly you see in you know in, uh, you know in our, in our cities uh, uh, out in the west that there are there are some bad actors who have who have done some bad things that should be investigated but there's a there was a reluctance in the Trump administration to prioritize kind of right wing domestic terrorism, which is the QAnon group or the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, or right. you know as we as we kind of go along, um, and and I think we paid for that on on January sixth, and and you know I watched the hearings and I, I like Chris Ray and and uh, you know and and but but between uh, the, the the testimony of, uh, uh, of of Chris Ray as well as the testimony of the DOD officials, I was left very dissatisfied. That there was that feeling um, uh, of of remorse and regret, and also a feeling of what what are we going to do next? Um, because again, we we can do this. Uh, uh, there is a domestic internal domestic terrorism problem, and that frankly is 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 is, is our biggest national security threat right now. Yeah. Now that we're up to speed on some of the major stories this week, I have one more question to close us out with, which is: What stories are you following that may have flown under the radar? or that our listeners might have missed, but also that will influence our politics in a way we might not expect. Mike, do you want to lead us? Uh, I'm watching the unfolding immigration debate, which, again, maybe it's because of my own bias. I think it's very important in terms of looking at uh, democracy moving forward, at least for this next generation. It's not as high profile um, as some of these other more pressing issues uh, for for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is if, if, the, if this is going to get done, it's going to have to be cooked and quiet for a while because it is so explosive. But look, we are so far past getting this done. Um, we're, this is two decades past the, the, the appropriate timeline to get an immigration bill done. I think it's going to be very expansive. I think it's going to be very sweeping. And my guess is that the Biden administration will probably look at something as broad-based as granting amnesty to 20 million people who meet certain criteria uh, that are undocumented, that would dramatically change the political landscape of this country, not just our complexion as a people. And I'm watching that very closely because we are just at this moment in time where 
the redistricting stuff that you're exploring here on the podcast, the voting rights topics that we're discussing um, are obviously extremely important with HR1. And then I think the third leg of this stool in, in getting uh, democracy reformed and the country back on, on, on steadier ground is reforming immigration. All three of them are going to have extraordinary implications with our body politic. Lucy? Yeah. I mean, to piggyback off of what Mike just said, I actually am really interested in how the immigration debate is popping up in in other areas. And this week, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, rescinded his mask mandate, even though Texas is doing really terribly for COVID. Um, He did it on Texas Independence Day as some kind of, you know, stupid shtick. But he has now pivoted immediately, as have other people on the right, including, you know, people you never needed to hear from again, like Newt Gingrich, to blaming any kind of future COVID outbreak on immigrants, which is insane. And to the point, (laughs) I was so struck by this yesterday. I mean, it's such brazen xenophobia, nativist stuff. And, and it, it, you know, it's like you almost hate to even engage with this stuff because it's just on its face. So gross, but it's also just not true. I mean, the rate of the positivity rate of coronavirus infection among people who are crossing over the border. And by the way, it is not that there are these massive caravans that are just sort of flooding the zone, right? It's like 6,000 children, you know, unaccompanied minors types who came in. We had a little, a slight uptick last month, but the positivity rate of people who've been tested who are crossing over is lower than the positivity rate of <laughs> regular Texans. Wow. So again, you don't, you don't want to get in the kind of like um, the kind of hole of getting it. engaging right. with these yeah. sort of just right. obviously on their face, horribly motivated things. But it's kind of interesting, right? It's also just wrong. It's, it's also just, not it's also just quite wrong. Yeah. And so I I think that you're going to see a lot of Republicans embrace the kind of um, the never let a crisis go to waste theme, (laughs) to borrow a phrase from Ron Manuel, but in a really ugly way, which is to use um, really their ineptitude, their failure to address COVID, their failure to organize vaccines effectively, their failure to keep their residents safe as a sort of entry point for really, really ugly, nativist, xenophobic rhetoric that we will probably see repeat itself in all kinds of other issues. So they're doubling down. Uh, Look for the connections they're making from issues that are not connected. um, And amplify those anecdotes to show sort of just the depths of of their ugliness. Mark, how about you? Sure. So, you know, I think there was a really important piece, uh, I think it was in the Times this morning or yesterday about <clears throat> about uh, upcoming uh, debate and uh, and what will the Biden policy be on drone strikes? Um, and so this is kind of coming out again. You know, it's our counterterrorism policy in kind of not only in war zones, but in in and more kind of other denied areas such as, you know, Yemen and Somalia, um, Libya. And so, you know, there's there's been, uh, uh, you know, a lot of discussion on, you know, whether or not Trump, the Trump administration was too lenient um, on, on allowing drone strikes. And then are we going to go back to the Obama t- uh, administration where it was much more tightly controlled and and frankly, micromanaged? And so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, hopefully they'll find a middle middle ground. But this is uh, this is something that was reported yesterday. And so I'm really looking to, to see where this goes. All right. Before I let you three go, where can everyone find you on the Internet? Mike? Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Lucy? On Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Mark? Twitter at at M. Polymer. All right. Mark, Mike, and Lucy, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. And I want to thank everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have questions or advice for us, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode of The Roundup, email us by Wednesday of that week, because that's when we finalize our topics. You can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And if you've learned something in today's episode, it would help tremendously if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. This is Politicology, and I'll see you in the next episode.